Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Mito Action's podcast, Energy in Action. I'm Kyra Mann, CEO of Mito Action, and I'm your host. Here on Energy in Action, we talk all things Mito, and I'm glad you're here to learn and be part of our community. Welcome, everyone, to today, today's episode of Energy in Action. I am your host, Kyra Mann, CEO of Mito Action, and we are excited to have with us for our second conversation with the clinical and research team at Akron Children's Hospital and their mitochondrial center. Joining us today, we have Dr. Bruce Cohen, Dr. Matt Ginsberg, and Ashley Erdusky. We'll start with just having everyone go around and tell us a little bit about your role at the clinic and how you got involved in mitochondrial medicine. Ashley, would you like to start us off? Sure. My role in the mitochondrial department at Akron Children's is I am the clinical research nurse, along with a few others at our department. Um, We help to get studies up and running as far as the behind the scenes work, and we also help to recruit patients. And as the clinical research nurse, we basically conduct most of the visits and do all of the nursing aspects of those. And we just assist Dr. Cohen and Dr. Ginsburg in the appointments and the data entry. Wonderful. Thank you, Ashley. We're excited to have you with us. Dr. Cohen, would you like to go next? Sure. Bruce Cohen. I've been uh, at Akron Children's Hospital for a little over 12 years, and I've been involved in mitochondrial disease care uh, for a long, long time. My first patient I met in 1983, and that's when I got interested in mitochondrial disease. One of the reasons I wanted to join Akron Children's Hospital was to be able to conduct clinical trials on people with mitochondrial disease and have been doing so, uh, again, for the entire time I've been here. So it's a real pleasure to join this conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Cohen. Dr. Ginsburg? Hi, uh, so I'm Matt Ginsburg. I am a pediatric neurologist. I also did some extra training in neuromuscular and I, uh, I've been at Akron Children's for a few years now uh, as part of the mitochondrial center once we sort of formally opened it. And then I'm involved with uh, seeing patients with mitochondrial disease here, as well as um, part of some of the clinical trials that we're doing. So pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. So last conversation we had with your team, we talked about the clinical visits. And if someone was interested in coming to see one of the doctors at Akron, what was the process and kind of what the culture is and how you manage your patient team. Today, we're going to focus on clinical trials. So Dr. Cohen, can you share with us about the current clinical trials that you have going on at Akron Children's today for mitochondrial disease? So we do have many clinical trials going on. We've been involved with about a dozen different companies over the last 12 years in opening and conducting these trials. And I'm just going to have to go through the list uh, to to talk about them. Some of the trials are actively recruiting. Others are open but not recruiting. And other trials have closed uh, along the way. So um, actually, the first day that I came to work here, I had to transfer Um, some active patients from the hospital I was at to Akron Children's Hospital to continue treating them with investigational agents. So I really started on day one with um, these these type of projects. Our first big study, we opened with Edison Pharmaceuticals. Edison uh, later became uh, Bioelectron and then was bought out by PTC Therapeutics. Of course, the trial drug was originally called EPI-743, and now is known as vitiquinone. 
And we've run uh, three large trials uh, with this agent, and those included an open-label study that was a compassionate use type of trial, then a trial for Lee syndrome, and more recently a trial for uh, mitochondrial epilepsy. All those patients on those trials have rolled into a long-term follow-up study that we're conducting now with PTC. We ran a trial with a company called Raptor for a drug known as cysteamine. Uh, that trial was closed by the company that bought Raptor and never was completed. But the brainchild of that trial um, has formed a new company, Thiogenesis, and we will hopefully be opening up a better version of cysteamine, something that's a lot more tolerable sometime in the next year. We worked with a company called Riata, which made a compound called RT408. That trial, too, was closed by the company. But interestingly enough, a few weeks ago, that same drug was approved by the FDA for use in Friedrich ataxia. Friedrich ataxia isn't really a primary mitochondrial disease, but a secondary mitochondrial disease. And we're hoping uh, that drug comes back into trial for mitochondrial diseases. We've had a very long relationship also with a company called Stealth Biotherapeutics. Their drug is known as elamipatide. Uh, we've done phase one, two, and three studies with them, as well as a registration study. And now we're doing a, another phase three study looking at uh, mitochondrial myopathy caused by nuclear DNA mutations. Estellus has a compound called ASP0367 that we're you know, doing a study on for mitochondrial myopathy. Uh, another company called Reneo, and their drug is REN001 for mitochondrial myopathy. And we're going to be opening a study shortly with a company called Neurovive, KL1333, looking at patients with a 3243 mutation causing MELOS. And we're in conversations with, I already mentioned Thiogenesis, but also Wellstat and some other companies uh, to bring drugs into clinical trials. So we've got a very active clinical trial site, and we're looking, always looking for patients. That's wonderful. Dr. Ginsburg, can you tell us about, like, so if you have patients that are listening that think, you know, they've heard their diagnosis by Dr. Cohen in some of the, the studies, how does a patient understand whether or not they qualify? And then what would be the first steps for them if they're interested in finding out more about the trial? So if you're a patient or a family member, I think you have a few different options, and it might depend on where you're located and, and what your specific circumstances are. There's a website called clinicaltrials.gov, which is kind of like the master registration site for um, trials in the United States. And you can put in you know, a diagnosis and filter for trials that are active and recruiting right now and look at all of the trials that you know, might, you might be applicable. You can also use resources from, you know, like uh, the UMDF or other organizations in action to see, um, to connect with other people who might just be knowledgeable about existing trials. And then, of course, if you're if you're near us or you're if you're just interested in seeing what you might qualify for more directly, you can always come for a visit here at one of the other kind of mito centers uh, around the country and uh, see what you're actually eligible for. If you do use one of the like the websites at clinicaltrials.gov, it'll often list some of the basic things like what ages might be applicable, what diagnoses might be applicable for that trial. But usually with clinical trials, there's often a kind of a checklist of lots of little details. And you may or may not know if, if you really qualify for the trial until you really speak with one of the trial coordinators or staff 
And so usually if you're, again, if you're going through that website, that'll, they'll list one of the, the clinical trial staff on the website that you could reach out to and with like an email address. And certainly if, uh, if people are listening and are, are coming to Akron, let's say they can always start by reaching out to our just our MITO uh, center staff to, to sort of inquire more. Wonderful. Ashley, we know in the MITO community that it's often the patient that's advocating for the consideration of a treatment or a therapy or a clinical trial, right? So a lot of times it's the patient going to their doctor saying, hey, I heard about this trial. Is this something I could be interested in? Is it appropriate for the patient then to reach out to Akron and your offices to learn more about it? Or is that something that they need to coordinate and have their physician reach out to ask more detailed and specific questions about the trial? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of people actually do reach out to us. Um, They either reach out to the Mito Clinic, Dr. Cohen, somehow the information gets relayed to us, even to us directly. We're happy to go over, you know, they tell us what illnesses they have or diagnosis they have. We can see if we have any studies available that do meet their qualifications. And then we often, this is a mainly our part of the job is like the nurses and the coordinators is to kind of look at that protocol, see if they meet that criteria. And we often can talk to them about that over the phone. However, we then do reach out to ask them to reach out to their hospital, their doctors to be able to give us more information and to see if they are a further candidate but we do walk them through that whole process. What's the inclusion? What's the exclusion? We can send them part of like a consent form so they can read through some of it as well. If there's any questions for them to reach out to us, if it's an, a trial that they are interested in, we're more than happy to speak with their doctors, talk with Dr. Cohen, Dr. Ginsburg, and any other PIs to get them on a trial. First stop would be taking a look at MitoAction's website because they're going to keep you abreast of all active clinical trials. I think that's an easy place to start. Um, and of course, the patients can always reach out to us. If a patient lives near a competing site for us, in other words, if a patient lives in the Boston area and the trial is open in Boston, we'll encourage the patient to actually visit that Boston site. We do get a lot of patients that come from a distance because there aren't really a lot of mito centers near us that have open clinical trials or MITO centers near us, but not those with open clinical trials. And so we do have patients travel to see us all the time and we make special arrangements uh, for the patients to travel and see us. Uh, We do talk to patients, our coordinators talk to the patients over the phone. We never get involved in the patient's medical care until they've signed that consent form, however, which right now has to be at our site. So we, we can talk a patient through the process but we really can't make do the evaluation or get involved with the patient's medical care until they come to visit us. Uh, so we basically, we don't overstep our boundaries. And we, uh, as a trial site, we always work with the referring providers to make sure that they know what we're doing, we know what they're doing, and we don't trip over each other in terms of interfering with the patient's Coordinated care, the buzzword, right? <laughs> That's wonderful. We also, just to kind of piggyback off of Dr. Cohen, can speak with the sponsors to help them find locations closer to them as well. Like I've had people call from overseas looking for trials, and we've been able to um, contact like sponsors and see if there's, you know, potential for them to be there and where we can get them to be at a site that's closer to them. Right. That's wonderful. 
Dr. Ginsburg, you know, one of the things that that I think we we've struggled with lately in our community is the enrollment for clinical trials. And I think COVID has added some of some anxiety to that process. But can you talk a little bit about the importance of patients participating in clinical trials and why it's so critical to move therapy development to have the patient involvement? It's absolutely critical. So we can't really um, know whether any treatment is effective and safe for mitochondrial disorder or anything else without really subjecting it to scientific inquiry, right, to perform a clinical trial. And if you're a patient or a family member of someone with a primary mitochondrial disorder, participating in the trial is, you know, just one of the biggest gifts that you can give, not just to yourself or even the people who are living with mitochondrial disease right now, but to all of the people who will come after that. Because even if a clinical trial shows that, a, let's say, a medication is not effective, that's such a useful piece of information that still brings us one step forward and one step closer to effective therapies. We have to know what doesn't work also. So these are also rare diseases, and we need to have enough patients and subjects that participate in these trials to gather enough data and to know um, whether, the, the, let's say, the medication is effective. And so um, really every person counts and helps to reach the goal that we need to, um, to actually complete these trials. So usually when the people who are performing the trials design them, they design them with a certain number of people in mind that they want to evaluate based on how many they think they need kind of mathematically and statistically to know whether that, that medication is effective. And so that's that's why it's so essential to kind of meet that, that goal or, or else we, we can't really kind of take that step forward and decide whether whether the intervention is helpful or not. Yeah. Dr. Cohen, what would be your your thoughts to a patient or a family that's considering a clinical trial? Because right, with mitochondrial disease, like once you get things settled, it's hard to think about rocking the boat, right? And maybe starting a new trial or maybe having to go off a therapy to go into a clinical trial. So what would be your thoughts that you would share with a family that's considering going into a clinical trial to kind of ease their mind with some of the anxieties that they might have as they're making this decision? I think the process in most cases ends up being a a long process because when a patient would first come to see me or any of my colleagues in the field, you know, not only here, but at any of the other mitochondrial centers, I think most patients ask the question or we have a conversation early on in the relationship about clinical trials. Mm -hmm. Um, I got my start in clinical trials, not in mitochondrial disease, but in the area of brain tumors, which was my first, you know, big job um, and spent 30 years doing clinical trials in the area of brain tumors. And we wouldn't be where we are with many brain tumor therapies, um, some of which have have advanced dramatically and some types Mm -hmm. of tumors it hasn't advanced dramatically. But with the one the the tumors where we actually now cure more people than not, it all started with baby steps, and it all started with clinical trials. We wouldn't have gotten to where we where we are today uh, if it weren't for clinical trials. So just as Dr. Ginsburg had pointed out, it all starts with a conversation, and the steps that we take are built on prior experience with clinical trials. It, clinical trials are not for everyone. Um, we've had several of our patients that come in for the purpose of starting the clinical trial. And then during the discussion, the patient goes, wait, 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 you mean this could happen? 
Yeah. And I would say, yes, that could happen. The biggest, I think, hurdle people have is getting past the concept that they may be put into the placebo uh, arm of the trial, meaning that for at least a period of time, um, they're not going to get an active medication. They're going to get essentially um, what we refer to as a sugar pill. Um, it's not really sugar, but it's it's a treatment that doesn't have any medication within it. And and that's an obstacle for some people. Tell us a little bit more for those who aren't familiar with a getting a placebo versus a drug. How is that decided? And at some point, does the patient receive the drug? So depending on the trial design and what we know about the disease itself, the Food and Drug Administration, along with what scientists recommend, is that many clinical trials begin with what we call a randomized, double-blinded type of trial, meaning that before the medication is given, the patient will be randomized by computer to receive either the drug itself, also called the active agent, or a placebo, uh, which is everything but the active agent. So if it's given by injection, it's the carrier fluid that gets injected into the body. If it's given as a pill, it's essentially inert powder uh, that doesn't have any medicinal effect. And again, that happens by computer. Neither I will know if the patient's getting the placebo or the active agent, nor will the patient know. And this is important for two reasons. Number one, we want to get medications to market that we know that work. And we want to get medications to market that we know that don't have side effects. And uh, the only way to really do that is to basically compare how people do who get the medication versus not get the medication. Right. And that requires a placebo arm. For diseases as serious as mitochondrial disease, most of the studies that have been done to date using placebo control have what's called an open label extension. So you may be on placebo for six months, but you know at the six-month point, you're going to get the active drug for another six months or a year or two years or whatnot. Some trials don't have that open label extension. And you can say, well, why don't they? And the, I think the honest answer is they don't have open label extension because the companies that are trying to get these drugs to market don't have enough money mm -hmm. to pay for the patients to actively get the medication plus the monitoring that needs to take effect uh, once they get the medication. That's interesting. If you're maybe considering participating in a clinical trial, you know, these might be some of the things that you either look at on the description of the trial or ask when you go for a visit or speak with a research coordinator is whether there's a placebo or not, how are patients randomized, which is, you know, whether how they're randomly selected to go to the placebo or the active drug. Because some of them might be, you know, 50-50, some of them might not be 50-50 how long the trial might last for, and whether there's that open label extension part to the trial, if that's something that you're interested in. A lot of the patients that we interact with, when we talk about clinical trials, one of the things that we hear frequently is that, you know, a fear of participating in clinical trials because people have the opinion that perhaps the clinical trial is your last resort. And what we always try to say to patients is it's not the last resort, it's the opportunity to have access to therapies that otherwise you would never have access to. And as you said, you're making a huge impact, not just for yourself, but for those who come behind you. 
what would you say to those patients that that are struggling with that fear of of a clinical trial being a last result? Yeah, I wonder if that comes from experiences that people may have in other parts of medicine or in the past where maybe that was part of maybe is associated with things like cancer or other things. But I think in all areas of medicine, clinical trials are how we we go from where we are right now with a particular condition to doing one step better, or hopefully many steps better. So it doesn't matter, even if it's not mitochondrial disease, it could be you know treatments for the common cold, you would still do a clinical trial to figure out how we're going to go from what we currently have to the next best thing. So I don't think of them as last resorts by any means. Um, and clinical trials are performed in all kinds of conditions, and, and mitochondrial disease is one of them. I agree with you. It's kind of you're the tip of the spear if you're participating in the clinical trial. Let's say the medication that's being tested, if it doesn't work, it, it doesn't work. But if it does work, then you're the person who has the first opportunity to actually be exposed to it and maybe the first opportunity to, to get even uh, more sustained access to it if, if it's an, an open label extension or an expanded access program. And um, if it's effective medication, you participating in the trial also helps it get to the FDA and be approved faster as well. So in all of those cases, what you're doing is getting, an, you know, hopefully getting an effective medication to you and other people faster. It's really about progress and moving forward. That's what clinical trials are about. Ashley? I've always heard like Dr. Cohen and Dr. Ginsburg say, and you always hear your doctors say, but the earlier the treatment, the better the results are. So it's not the end of care, but it's the beginning for some and the beginning to understand the drug. So the earlier the treatment sometimes can give us the better the results as well. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Dr. Cohen? I just wanted to add that there are struggles that we're having. The first struggle is what you raised is that we don't have enough patients for our clinical trials. And we too believe that the pandemic popped a balloon, poked a hole in our flow of patients getting out of their homes, just as many of us were afraid to leave our homes. And luckily, and hopefully we're past the pandemic. And so hopefully our patient volumes will increase so that we can get more patients enrolled in clinical trials. But we also have a, a, a struggle with something called endpoints. For a drug to get FDA approved, not only do we have to show that it's safe or safe enough, we have to show that it's effective. And to show that it's effective, we have to know before we start the trial how it's going to be effective. We have to take a guess. And so in my work in brain tumors, that was fairly easy. It wasn't pleasant, but it was fairly easy. We look at does the medication work better than the best available agent that we have to treat the brain tumor? And how do we measure that? We measure time for the tumor to come back, time for the patient to die, uh, time for the tumor to grow on scan. Not pleasant concepts to think about, but very easy concepts to put our hand around because all we need to know if the drug is working is to do another scan. And you, you, you know right away whether the medication's working. With mitochondrial drugs, what do we have to look at? For most of the trials in adult patients, we ask the question, how far can the patient walk in a period of six minutes? For children, the, one of the current questions we're asking is, does this medication reduce the seizure count that our patients are having? And these are not endpoints that are easy to measure, 
In fact, not endpoints that the Food and Drug Administration has had a chance to really review in the context of mitochondrial disease. So we, we do struggle with that, and we're not over that hump of trying to figure out what's the best endpoint in a person with mitochondrial disease. Right, because even with a six-minute walk test, it becomes somewhat subjective per patient to know what is success for that patient and improvement for that patient. And it may not be the across the board, but it doesn't mean they don't see improvement. Yes, and any mitochondrial patient will tell you, some days I can do better than other days. Right. And are we doing that six-minute walk test on a day they feel well or they don't feel well? We, we have ways to try to control for that. People still have good days and bad days. Right. And I think also one of the big challenges that our patients struggle with with mitochondrial disease is like those bad days, it may not be something visible that someone else can see that's plaguing them or causing them symptoms or issues. And so people think like you look fine. So why, why are you struggling? Why are you having this issue? Um, and so it's hard. It's hard to explain that and quantify that sometimes. That's a great point. So Dr. Cohen, can you tell us a little bit about, I know, easing people's anxieties again, going back to that, because we want, we want people to feel comfortable and encouraged to participate in these trials. Can you talk about some of the things that Akron Children's is doing since COVID to help patients manage their participation? Things like, you know, maybe telehealth appointments or being able to do video diaries from home that might eliminate the number of visits they may have to make. So telehealth visits really did help us through the pandemic. But right now we're entering a sort of a strange phase of telehealth visits because just in terms of general health care, you can't do telehealth visits across state lines. And, And frankly, most of our patients come from across state lines. Uh, We live on the border of Pennsylvania, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Indiana, Michigan, close to Illinois. That's where most of our patients come from. So we can't routinely do telehealth visits. But we do make their lives here easier. And Ashley probably can talk more about it than I can. But we have, for children under the age of 21, Ronald McDonald House available to us. And for our adult patients, the sponsors do put our patients up in nice hotels, pay for their expenses while they're on the road. And uh, we have concierge services within our mitochondrial network to help our patients. But I think like for Ashley to probably add to my comments. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, a lot of times it is all about communicating with the families and how they feel comfortable and their arrival to Akron children. Once they're here in their stay, as Dr. Cohen has mentioned, the sponsors often will pay for a hotel, even if it is a child under 21, their families to stay. There's private vehicles that they allow them to rent. They can have a driver sometimes. They help with flights. Definitely on the financial front, they are helping with that. A lot of trials will also reimburse for any things that you have spent out of pocket as far as like food, if you decide to book your own hotel. And again, at Akron Children's, we're always here. We can meet you at the front door. We've done like earlier appointments to try to minimize your risk and exposure to other patients and families um, within the hospital. Most of the times when they do come, we try to keep them in one area so they're not traveling to different parts of the hospital if that's an opportunity for them as well. So we try to minimize all of the risk factors that we can. That's great. Dr. Ginsburg, can you tell us a little bit about the Akron Children's involvement in the NAMDAC project? 
for those that don't know, it's the North American Mitochondrial Disease Consortium and the Biobank Project. Sure. Although I might go over to um, Dr. Cohen afterwards since he has the best historical perspective on it. <laughs> but uh, it's a, an NIH-funded NIH, uh, uh, consortium that is involved in, well, one, one, at least one component is the, a registry of patients with primary mitochondrial disease. And they're involved with multiple research projects. And I would say, you know, not every piece of research is about testing a drug to see whether it works in a particular mitochondrial disease. Sometimes we also need to just gather more information to, to make new hypotheses about, you know, conditions like, like specific mitochondrial disorders and to help us understand even just how to take care of persons with mitochondrial disease better. So programs like registries help us gather more data. Doesn't necessarily require you know invasive procedures and the same level of commitment to an interventional clinical trial. And it's a way that even a broader population, so there's less um, excluding criteria for it. A way that a broader group of people can actually participate in our um, knowledge gathering and discovery process in mitochondrial disease. And a lot of the work through the NAMDEC involves the kind of information that you'd already be gathering in a regular visit when you go to see your mitodoc. So that's that's one of the advantages. So uh, Dr. Cohen, do all patients that um, that come to the Akron Children's Clinic, are they are they participating in the biobank? And if you're not a patient, do you have the opportunity to participate through Akron Children's? So uh, NAMDEC is a consortium of uh, I think now close to 20 hospitals in North America, many if not all of which are part of the mitochondrial care network, which of course MitoAction has been very supportive of over the course of the last few years. Uh, NAMDEC's been in existence, I think, 13 or 14 years now, and uh, it is funded by the NIH uh, at this at this point. As Dr. Ginsburg had mentioned, our biggest project is the registry project. Any patient with a mitochondrial disease um, is eligible to enroll in the NAMDAC project. And the work for that is about this much my work. And I'm just putting up my fingers about an inch apart and holding my arms about three feet apart, this much the work of our nurse coordinators and our study coordinators, because it's a huge amount of data that needs to get transferred uh, safely and securely from our database into the NAMDAC database. And so that's, and, and I'm really proud to say, given the fact that we're one of the smallest hospitals in NAMDAC, we're the third largest contributor to patients in that uh, database. That's wonderful. Yeah, the next big project is the biobank. And the biobank consists of uh, what we call tissue um, donation. The most common tissue donated is blood tissue. Uh, blood provides the liquid part of the blood, uh, which contains biomarkers. Uh, it also contains DNA. And we're the largest contributor in NAMDEC to the biobank. Tissues can also consist of skin cells stored in perpetuity. It's called a fibroblast cell culture. And not all patients with mitochondrial disease have a skin biopsy, but those that do can have their cell culture donated to NAMDEC as well. And of course, any other tissue like muscle biopsy can be donated uh, to the biobank. What's the purpose of the biobank? So there's a researcher at an institute anywhere in the world 
has a concept. They need tissue from patients with a particular type of mitochondrial disease, and sometimes all they need is a drop of blood, for example. That researcher can petition to a committee within NAMDEC to say, can you give me these tissues uh, for me to do research on? And as long as the it's a legitimate request, those tissues are transferred uh, to that researcher. And this has been going on as well. And again, we're very proud to be an active participant. So I guess the answer to your question is that any patient with a mitochondrial disease can register uh, through one of the NAMDAC sites to have their data and our tissue uh, part of the project. And as Dr. Ginsburg said, this is information that's already being collected anyway, right? So this is these aren't additional tests that you require to participate in the biobank. These would be tests you would already be having. And a piece of that sample would then go to the biobank. Is that correct? That's correct. So if, if there's a an adult patient who comes to see us and registered, I would say to the adult patient, can we take an extra tube of blood for the biobank? The adult patient would likely say yes. If it's a baby, I generally don't stick the baby for blood unless they're already getting stuck for blood. So if I've got to draw three tubes of blood, the question becomes, can I draw the fourth tube of blood? In a little child, I generally don't ask to draw that first tube of blood, just especially if the child is of age that can make a choice. Sure. All the data is transferred electronically de-identified, meaning the patient's given a code number. And so we can identify who the patient is if the scientist comes back to me and says, we found something in your patient that could affect their health in a beneficial way they can tell me that information and I can release that information to the family if that were to be the case. That's great. So it's a less invasive way for patients to take an active role in clinical trials, right? um, To participate by providing information, by providing samples that are already being collected for other testing. So it's a great way for, for patients to take an active role in clinical trials without having to take a therapy. Absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. So one of the things, um, and I'll go back to you, Dr. Cohen, on this question, is that one of the challenges that our community face, we all know diagnosis, is a, is a real huge challenge. And the majority of therapy-based clinical trials are requiring a genetically confirmed diagnosis of mitochondrial disease. So what would be your thoughts or advice to those patients that are still on the diagnostic journey, that are trying to get a diagnosis, but that are also interested in participating in a clinical trial? So I I believe that research that NAMDAC provides would be one way to to go about it. In fact, one of our current trials that we're doing within NAMDAC, again, it's not a clinical trial, is that we're taking patients who don't have that genetic diagnosis and performing on their bio samples, okay, on already donated samples, the most sophisticated type of genetic testing called whole genome testing. So we're doing that research for the patients that don't have the diagnosis. For patients who fall into that category that aren't part of the biobank, we can contact the patient to ask them if they want to participate in this free to them uh, investigation. All we need is a mouth swab because currently that's another sample that works very well. When we started collecting stuff for the biobank, we were really interested in blood for the DNA and 
the liquid part of the blood for the biomarker. Biomarkers are chemicals within the blood that help identify uh, what could be a mitochondrial disease. Uh, now, if all we need is DNA, we can get it off of a mouth swab. That's incredible. It's just an example of how people who are part of NANDEC can actually have their health care benefited by just showing up and signing the understanding what we're trying to do and signing the consent form. Yeah, that's wonderful. So for those patients that are struggling with a diagnosis, this could be a really great way for them to move this process a little bit faster and further along for them. If they're struggling with a diagnosis, it could open some doors, give them some answers. Um, So that's really great to know. And by going to the MitoAction website, you can find links to NAMDAC, you can find links to Mitochondrial Care Network, and then see if you're near one of their centers. Wonderful. That's great to know. So always looking for new opportunities, right, to, to get those answers. Ashley, can you tell us one of the things I think that, that can be misleading, right? There are not a lot of mitodocs who take adult patients. It's mostly focused on pediatrics. And Akron Children's, you also treat adult patients. Are adult patients allowed to participate in clinical trials as well? And what does that process look like? Yes, we do actually treat adult patients even in our clinical trials. So as long as it's part of the protocol, there's no age specifics, then they are able and they would just do it like any of our pediatric or any of our pediatric patients do. They just reach out and as long as they qualify, we continue to do what we would for a pediatric patient. So it's all based on the protocol that comes down from the sponsor as long as there's no age limit. Um, if we're aware of them as an adult patient, we reach out to them as well, let them know about the studies that are available for them at our site. And if they're interested, we continue on. For some of the mitochondrial myopathy studies, it's actually primarily geared towards adult patients. If you're an adult with a mitochondrial myopathy or mitochondrial condition, we definitely want to hear from you. That's wonderful. Dr. Cohen? It's something that most patients don't realize is interesting nuance with the core group of physicians that take care of mitochondrial patients. When we think about um, doctors, we think about doctors specifically that take care of adults and doctors that specifically take care of children. Well, the core of most mitochondrial groups are neurologists and geneticists. And those are two specialties where the training is both in adult and pediatric disease. So as neurologist, I'm board certified and Dr. Ginsburg's board certified in neurology. And then there's a parenthetical with special competency in child neurology or special qualifications in child neurology. The same is true with, with genetics is that you're trained in both adult genetics and pediatric genetics. And so that coming out of our training programs, we're qualified to take care of both adults and children. And I came out of my training program in 1989 and started taking care of adults soon after that and have been taking care of adults ever since. And it's, it's, it's natural for me. So when I came to Akron Children's Hospital, the first question I ask is, are you going to let me take care of adults? Right. You know, I was told we have an active burn unit that takes care of people well into their 90s. And we have, you know, had a cystic fibrosis unit that took care of adult patients as well. And that the history of the hospital was taking care of both adult and children. So on the outpatient side, we are allowed to take care of patients of all ages. Or sometimes, as I refer to it, we take care of children of all ages. Yeah. 
that's right. <laughs> Ashley. And just to piggyback off of Dr. Cohen, as research nurses and coordinators, we also have training for adults as well. We don't just keep up with our training for pediatrics. We do have that adult training so that we can provide that quality care for them as well. That's wonderful. That's good to know. So I have one last question for each of you. So hope is on the horizon is a phrase that MitoAction often uses to continue to encourage our patients about the progress that's being made in mitochondrial medicine. And one of the things that I like to tell my patients is that 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, somewhere in the world, there is a light on in a lab where somebody is studying mitochondrial disease. So what would be your words of encouragement to the patients who we strive to continue to provide this sense of hope as they navigate their journey, right? The advancements that have been made over the last, even the last, you know, five to seven years have been incredible. So I would love to hear from each of you, your words of encouragement to these families that progress is being made and that hope is on the horizon for them. So Ashley, let's start with you. I would just say that you are correct. There is always a light on, even at our facility, we are continuing every day. We're reaching out to patients and we hear like the progress that patients are making. Like I am in communication with patients probably every couple of weeks. And I have parents that do tell me like, through this trial, we have seen better head control. We've seen the progress. Um, We recently had a patient tell me that we can now take them out into society because they are able to smile more and engage more and they feel comfortable. So in those moments that are your toughest, they definitely are, but there is light at the end of the tunnel and there are people seeing the progress and that we won't stop and we will continue to fight for you along the way. That's wonderful. Dr. Ginsberg? Yeah, I would say I think this is really one of the most exciting times for research in mitochondrial disease. I think I looked earlier today at the that clinicaltrials.gov website, and there's over 70 trials registered or studies registered for mitochondrial disease, just on a quick search, and, and that might not have, not have even included everything. Dr. Cohen mentioned before there's been a recent FDA approval of that drug, Omovalexalone, for Friedrich ataxia, which is a sort of, you know, a type of mitochondrial cousin. There's so many new medications in the clinical trials pipeline you know, there's more reason to be hopeful now than there than maybe ever before. Dr. Cohen? I've got a couple of things I'd like to say about this just terrific question. Several years ago, I was it was at the tail end of a mitochondrial meeting in San Diego. And a bunch of us were at the airport waiting for our red-eye flights back to the East Coast. We're all going to different cities. And we're sitting at a table way too small for the group of us that were there. Most of us had a beer. Some people had a glass of wine. And we were engaged like good friends would be in a very heated conversation. But we weren't arguing about which was the best basketball team or baseball team. We were having an argument with fists pounding on the table. (laughs) And and if you were sitting across the room and looking at us, you'd say, oh, there's just a bunch of friends arguing about, you know, what was going on on sports right. on TV, but we were arguing about how mitochondrial DNA replicate. Okay. Um, having a, we were having a academic discussion that was quite heated. And I just sat back watching the other members at the table, you know, laugh, argue uh, about, you know, something that we've been in conference rooms for four days, mm-hmm. you know, 
talking about. And that was probably the best conversation you had the entire time, right? Probably was. And <laughs> we're, we, we, are mitre, we, we are mitochondriacs. Uh, we, that's what we breathe and we think about really all day long. And so um, it, we, we don't stop thinking about it. Fast forward a number of years, tomorrow was asked to participate in a discussion with a new company that's trying to form a new type of gene therapy to treat mitochondrial disease. We now have some gene therapies to treat non-mitochondrial diseases that are incredibly effective. Dr. Ginsburg's specialty is neuromuscular. And, you know, when he entered the field, uh, a, a disease called spinal muscular atrophy was 100% fatal. And now we think it's 100% curable wow. or close to it uh, with a gene therapy. I'm hoping in five or 10 years, and I'm hoping closer to five, but realistically, I'm very conservative, that we will have treatments that are potentially curative for mitochondrial disease. I hate using the word cure because I believe it's overused, but I, I think we're really on the sort of the breakthrough of being able to use that word in a genuine sense. So I, I do have hope. That's exciting news. Go ahead, Ashley. Um, I just want to add also, I just feel like the mito world can feel so small sometimes. Like there's not as many people with diagnosis or you're trying to find it out. I myself was not even super aware of mitochondrial illnesses until a few years ago. And I was in the ICU working as a nurse. And Dr. Cohen and I now have a mutual patient. But at that time, I was so intrigued by their disease process and their diagnosis and their story. And I remember asking Dr. Cohen, you know, what, can you tell me more about it? And he brought over like papers printed out about it and stuff. And I read it every time I took care of that patient. But just know that like, although the world is small, everyone is so passionate in Mito that even in my time of being a Mito nurse in the past two years, that everybody wants the word out there. Everybody's talking about it. It's spreading like wildfire. So there is hope. And many more people are jumping on that mito train in hopes to help the families and the patients in this process. Progress, right? We're making progress. Things are moving forward. And it takes all of us. It takes the clinicians, the researchers, the pharmaceutical company, patient advocacy. It takes all of us working together. It's encouraging. It's encouraging. And I think when patients hear directly from the clinicians and researchers who are in the trenches and they hear it from you, they trust you. And they know that the progress is coming. Um, and so we thank all of you for taking the time today and for your tireless efforts to work so hard on behalf of this community. I know it's not easy a lot of days, right? You're fighting uphill battles and you're, you're thinking outside the box and you're trying things that people have never considered before. But you continue to stick with it for this community. And we're so incredibly grateful to each of you for that. And I appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Energy in Action. Remember to give us a five-star rating on your listening app. This helps to boost us up the charts and makes it easier for others to find us. You can find all of the links and details that we share today in the show notes or at mitoaction.org. Have a great day, and we look forward to having you join us next time.